Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Like many fans of Broadway, Waite and I have spent months anticipating the arrival of Hamilton at the Fox Theater. We were finally able to get tickets, and this past week we lined up a vaccinated babysitter and we navigated traffic in Midtown in the middle of rush hour and we paid through the nose for parking and we donned our N95 masks and we pulled out our umbrellas to join the folks in line waiting to get into the room where it happens. And we were so excited. And it was approaching curtain time, and we were starting to get anxious because the line wasn't moving, and we didn't want to miss the beginning of the show. And a couple minutes later, we noticed that some people started walking in the opposite direction. And a couple minutes after that, someone walked by and said, the show's been canceled for technical difficulties. And we stood there on the sidewalk, dumbstruck, and this 10-year-old girl in front of us, tears started to well up in her eyes. She was heartbroken, and her mom looked at us and said, these were tickets that were rescheduled from when COVID canceled this show last April. And we just stood there on the sidewalk for a few minutes, trying to decide in the rain what we were going to do with our evening because we'd already paid for a babysitter and we were not going home. And in the midst of all of this, this sense of anger started to percolate up inside of me. What do you mean it's canceled? How could you not see this coming? How dare you ruin an evening for me? Because this was clearly about me, right? And I looked at Wait and I said, can't we just have one nice thing? <laughs> And as we walked, uh, okay, as we stomped our way down Peachtree, trying to come up with an alternate plan for the evening, I just found myself getting more and more worked up. We stepped into this restaurant, and right at the top of the menu was a drink that the bartender had named the right kind of sinner. And I looked at the waitress and I said, I'll have one of those. I wasn't sure what the right kind of sin was in that situation, but according to the author of the Ephesians, I'm pretty sure that it was better for me to sip away my anger than to take it out on someone. And with time and with reflection that evening, I realized that this anger I felt inside of me was really the source of a great sense of disappointment. It was just another letdown in a season of having to recalibrate expectations at every turn. And I acknowledge that at the end of the day, my feelings, real as they were, come with layers of privilege that we even had the chance to see or not see the show in the first place. But that's the thing about emotions, contextualized or otherwise, it doesn't mean that we don't feel. It may not be about Hamilton tickets, 
But disappointment masked as anger is a feeling that I have a feeling many of you have become acquainted with in the last 18 months. And let's be honest, there are a lot of justifiable reasons in this world to be angry. This week we watched a group of young gymnasts testify again to the ways that system, our system failed to protect girls from sexual abuse. Not a week goes by that there isn't sufficient reason to be angry about institutionalized injustices, particularly for our black and brown brothers and sisters. I have watched the collective emotional reaction to the pandemic shift from disbelief to fear to exhaustion to where we are now, rage. A year ago, we had this sense of collective hope that if we could just support each other for a little while longer together, we would get through this. And today, it feels like everyone's walking around with this measure of pent-up anger to mask our frustration and despair. What are we to do with this feeling? So often we talk about anger as a, a negative emotion to the point that it is even labeled as a sin. Somehow we're not supposed to feel angry, which in my experience is a lot easier said than done. But I wonder if rather than view anger as a negative emotion or as a sin, if anger could actually serve as a signpost, an indicator that something isn't quite right. It is at the end of the day a natural and a necessary emotion that allows us to acknowledge in our bodies that there is something internal or in the situation around us that we need to attend to. For several weeks now, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We know that the apostle is writing to a church that's trying to figure out how to live together as Jews and Gentiles in a culture where worshiping Jesus and living together across difference is wildly countercultural. The church in Ephesus is full of two groups of people who, in every other aspect of their lives, stand in opposition to each other. And they have plenty of cultural reasons to be mad at each other. And yet, here they are in the church, called by God not just to coexist but to belong to each other, to live together in unity, to grow together in Christ. And so after chapters and chapters of making the case that God's reconciling love in Christ is why we should live together in unity, the apostle this morning steps up on his preacher's soapbox and says, how? Put away falsehood. Be angry, but do not sin. Let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up. Put away anger and bitterness and wrath and malice. Be kind. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God. Be angry, but do not sin, the apostle says. And then in the same breath, put away all anger. What in the world? Unfortunately for us, the English language skips the nuance of the imperative commands of our Greek preacher because there is a difference between the feeling or emotion of anger and an angered response. 
Anger, in this case, is validated as an emotion that we will likely experience when we engage deeply in community. He's basically saying, if you stick around the church long enough, someone is going to do something that you don't like. That's the cost of community. The charge, however, is to be angry but do not sin, to put away bitterness, wrath, malice. Rather than respond to your anger in violence against members of the community, be it verbal, physical, spiritual, or otherwise, forgive as Christ forgives and live in love. The apostle says if we want to know how to respond to the challenges of Christian community, then each of us is charged to be imitators of God, particularly the God revealed in Jesus the Christ. To be imitators of God acknowledges that God also gets angry. We don't often talk about God's anger. It's not like a light, warm thing to talk about in the pulpit. In fact, it makes most of us uncomfortable. We often try to skirt our way around the reality of God's anger by talking about the angry God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament, as if God somehow just flips a switch when we turn from the last verse of Malachi to the first verse of Matthew and is now just a different God. But the reality is that God is consistent throughout Scripture and feels the full breadth of emotions as the Creator relates to us, the created. God, throughout the Old Testament, shows an awful lot of love toward the Israelites, deliverance from Egypt, sustenance in the wilderness with manna and water from a rock. Even the gift of prophets calling people back to God is an act of love. Unless we think the New Testament is void of anger, there are certainly times when we witness Jesus get downright mad. How many times is it that Jesus says, couldn't you just stay awake for one hour while I went off to pray? Or you of little faith, which I've always assumed he said in a voice of just utter frustration. And let's not forget Jesus' most memorable day in the temple when he walked in and flipped over some tables and declared that the people had made God's house a den of robbers. While we would much rather hear about and talk about the God of love, by all scriptural accounts, God had experiences of a full range of emotions, including feeling angry. That's what happens when you love people deeply, but you don't control them. There are times that they just make you downright mad, and God is no exception. But if anger is a signpost for things that matter, then it also helps us to see what it is that matters to God as well. For the most part, Scripture bears witness to divine anger when God's people fall into sin or when we fail to keep our commitment, our covenant with God. In the days of Noah, God grew angry with the people's violence and sin against one another and the earth. And after instructing the upright Noah to build an ark, Scripture said God floods the earth. Not one of God's finer moments. But when the flood subsides, God makes a new covenant, not just with Noah, but with all the people of the earth. 
that God would put a bow in the sky and promise not to destroy again. A bow, a weapon of destruction that had been pointed at God's people, God has put upward as a reminder not just to us but to God that God's anger would never be taken out on God's people again. That doesn't mean that after Noah, God doesn't still get mad sometimes. God gets angry when Moses is up with God on the mountain and the people down below make a golden calf. In fact, Moses has to remind God of God's covenant with Abraham as a way to help God take a deep breath, count to four. God feels angry when the people worshiped Baal and make idols to other gods. God feels angry when the kings do evil in the sight of the Lord. God's anger is a signpost, a reminder that something is not right in that divine human relationship. And yet we're often reminded, typically in close conjunction to these same stories, that God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's ultimate goal is to maintain a loving relationship with God's people. Sometimes it's tough love. Exile certainly was. But God then always sent prophets to bring God's people back into right relationship. That's always been God's goal. And it's ultimately the goal for the church, to live in right relationship with God and with one another. The apostle writing to the church this morning acknowledges that this is not easy stuff. Put a bunch of people together with all of their quirks and differences of opinion, and conflict is inevitable. But if we want to know how to respond to the challenges of Christian community, the apostle says then we're charged to be imitators of God, particularly the God made known in Jesus Christ. To imitate is to mirror, to reflect, to reflect back. So the charge to imitate is to mirror God as if we are in a kind of holy dance with Christ. I've only taken a few dance lessons, partnered dance lessons with weight. It was a bit comical, I admit. Um, But any good dance partner knows that you learn to mirror your partner's actions so that you don't step on one another's toes and so that you're able to stay in sync with one another. To dance with Christ is to be intimately connected with God in a way that Christ directs your steps and you're able to mirror them back in your body in a way that reflects love. But I also think that the author of the Ephesians takes this a bit further because he's saying that to dance with one another is to dance with Christ because each of us is made in the image of God. Actor Alan Alda tells the story of teaching uh, mirroring acting techniques to a group of medical students to help them build their skills in communication. As a guest lecturer, he made these medical students find a partner in the class, and for a short time, one had to mirror exactly what the other one was doing. He instructs them, look at your partner, 
And anything that he says or does, you have to mirror exactly. Word, facial expression, gesture, the works. And then he says, in order to do this well, you can't trick your partner out. You can't move too fast. You can't move illogically. You have to help your partner mirror you. Some of the students find this exercise annoying and embarrassing, but Alda recalls when one medical student, he says he got it. The student had been rounding on one of the medical units and had gone into a room with an attending physician who was overtaxed and having a bad day, and he had watched this attending share some devastating news loaded with medical jargon, and the patient clearly didn't understand. The doctor had sort of laid down this bombshell and left. And the student, in an effort to learn and to try something that he'd learned in class, he asked permission to return to the patient's room and try again. And recalling everything that he had learned about mirroring, he sat down with the patient, and in plain language, he told her what was happening. And tears started to roll down the patient's face because it wasn't good news, but she really heard him. And the student went back to Alda afterwards, and he said, you, you helped me do this with that, that mirroring exercise. Because when I was mirroring her, she also was mirroring me. The two of us became reflections of one another, and I helped her face her diagnosis, but she helped me be a better doctor. To be imitators of God is to realize that the person in front of you, made in the image of God, is your mirror and you're theirs. Each of you has a choice about how you're going to respond to one another. So let anger be a signpost for what matters, but do not sin, says the apostle. Instead, remember that you, as part of a Christian community, have been invited into this sacred dance, charged to follow the music of the Spirit when it's easy, but also when it's hard. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us. In the name of the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.